This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is this inflation is already a major problem in this country and inflation is generally characterized by an increase in consumer prices and then people ask for higher wages to meet the consumer prices what then happens the uh, their employers all have to raise prices to meet the high wages they're now paying that leads prices to rise even more. It's a vicious cycle of inflation, inflation, inflation. And the problem is this. There was a book marketed recently which promises to make you a billionaire if you read it. And here's the problem. It has just reached the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, so a whole lot of people are about to become billionaires if they haven't already. And I can't imagine that's going to help the inflation problem. Uh, The book is How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. And I'm very, very pleased uh, to be joined by a longtime friend of mine, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, and the owner of this entire network, a self-made billionaire, the one and only John Katsimatidis. John, thanks for staying up late with us. I've been eager to talk with you about this book for a while now. Well, I I had a choice. Uh, Don't go to sleep or wake up at 1 (laughs) o'clock. So what did you pick? I didn't go to sleep. All right, okay. Well, you, we'll let you uh, we'll let you get a nap in uh, in a little while, uh, John. I want to talk to you about the book and congratulations on making the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. But first, I have to ask you about the 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 breaking news over the weekend. Everybody's going to be soliciting your opinion on it. I know you uh, commented on one show over the weekend about it, but a lot of folks are eager to get your take on the forthcoming indictment and arrest by the Manhattan District Attorney of your uh, longtime friend, Donald Trump. I know you guys go back about four decades. I know you've interviewed the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg. What's your take on this uh, this forthcoming arrest, John? Well, I know Donald Trump for about 40 years. But, you know, it's hard to say friend or acquaintance because a friend is somebody that you call up and say, what are you doing tonight? Let's go to dinner. Well, I've never done that. Right. Okay. But I've known him for 40 years. Uh, we were on the board of the Police Athletic League together. Uh, we were friends of Mr. Bob Morgator. Uh So I would call him an acquaintance. And and I always thought he was a decent guy. I mean, uh, I never did any business with them. And a lot of people uh, – so, look, I was uh, – he was still a member of the Police Athletic League board uh, when he became president. So we had a president that was a board member, which is uh, great. And, and so uh, some people are criticizing him for 
calling for protests in light of what happened to, with January 6th, is saying he should have specified peaceful demonstration. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I don't think there should be any protests. I mean, uh, I, I believe that, uh, and I've said this uh, to my daughter, and I've said this to uh, other people that I know, that uh, uh, January 6th, we still don't know 100 percent mm. of the truth. And I believe there were agitators within that group that created more of a problem than there should have been. Uh, I believe that uh, if there's another demonstration, there'll be paid agitators within that group to stir the pot. So I told my daughter, I don't think she should... uh, participate. And I told my friends, I don't think they should. Yeah. Well, that's a very sound advice, very sound uh, fatherly advice. All right. I know you have a whole hour on the radio later today to break this down and I'm sure you will, but I've been eager to talk with you about how far do you want to go? I've got my copy. I've been reading it so far. I'm not a billionaire, but I'm hoping by the time I get to the end, I will be. Uh, What made you, John, you've done a lot. You've uh, mastered the fields of uh, groceries, oil, energy, gasoline, real estate, uh, radio, biofuels, and a whole lot more, Uh, airline travel, and uh, some things you've done, I learned from this book for the first time. What made you want to write a book for the first time? I don't imagine you did it for the money. No, money. No, definitely not. Uh, You know, I'm reaching 70 years old. I'm I'm there already. Uh, And um, uh, my kids... uh, and I don't have any grandkids yet. Uh, so there's really two reasons. The family reason is um, if I do have grandkids, if a bus hits me before that, I want them to know uh, who mm. their grandfather was. Uh, and I think that's a, to write a little bit about uh, where we came from, a little bit of our family history. Uh, and I thought that was that would be the right thing to do. Uh the other reason is um, I'm an immigrant. I came over at six months old, and New York is the greatest city in the world. And uh, uh, there's a song that says, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> well, I grew up in Harlem, and I, want, you know, we were, I worked for the Police Athletic League for 40 years. And I want kids in Harlem, kids from the inner city, to know that if you keep your nose clean and work hard, that and, and I say this to them, if I made it, you can make it too. So uh, I, I, so it's a combination of reasons of uh, trying to, to to teach and put my arm around some of the kids and and let them know that if they work hard, you know. You, somebody else had said to me, a friend of mine said to me, "Well, you know, the harder you work." The luckier you get, you know, because I, sometimes I say, well, I got lucky. Right, right. Well, it's true. Well, I, I the feel that— The harder you work, the luckier you yeah, get. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly been been my experience, and I, I owe so much of whatever uh, success that I've had on the radio largely to you, but you work pretty hard to get into that position uh, to it's, to benefit from luck. And it, I'm struck by a few things in listening to you talk. One, 
it, what you said in terms of your story being an inspiring one for other working class and lower middle class young people, we so often hear stories of uh, millionaire athletes or um, Hollywood stars that happen to be minorities. And they always say it's important for younger folks who look like me to see that they can make it too. And it strikes me that you're doing that same thing. You're saying to somebody that may come here as an immigrant or somebody that may have to work their way up from nothing, you too in this country can make uh, to, can make yourself a monstrous success. It's absolutely true. Uh, it's the greatest country in the world. And uh, uh, I, I want to make sure the message does get through. Don't forget, my, my, my parents brought me over when I was six months old. We lived on 135th Street by City College, and my father worked as a busboy, never made more than $100 a week. Uh, and uh, I ended up going to Brooklyn Tech, the same place that your dad uh, went That's to. That's right. Uh, and I learned, I'll tell you, it was the greatest school, uh, Brooklyn Tech. I learned a lot. I, I, uh, I hung out with kids that were, were uh, very diverse. Uh, and uh, I think that was part of my head start. What I like about this book, I mean, I like a lot about it because I've known you a long time and I think I know you pretty well, but uh, there were so many stories in here that I had not heard. But I also enjoyed that this book is sort of part memoir, part instruction book, and each chapter sort of encapsulates a little bit of your personal philosophy. And you kind of go from illustrating stories from your own personal life to including pop cultural allusions to things like Planet of the apes to going all the way back to the wisdom of Socrates and ancient Greek philosophers, all while maintaining a pretty coherent narrative chronologically. It was very uniquely uniquely done. How long did it take you to write this book, John? Well, yeah, I started about three years ago, uh, and then COVID hit, and then I put it on the shelf for a while. Uh, uh, and I, I guess uh, we, we rewrote it a few times. Uh, and picked out chapters, uh, I would say two, three years. You mentioned your upbringing. You came here as an immigrant. You write in the book that uh, not only could you not speak a word of English, you couldn't speak a word of any other language unless you include goo goo gaga. Uh, Tell me about how your family came here to America and what led your family from uh, from Greece, although I, I understand there's some dispute about whether that island was actually owned by the Italians or owned by Greece at the time that you're that you were born there and how your family came to the United States? Well, no dispute. Uh, my two grandfathers, uh, my mother's part of the family came from Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. Um, and my, uh, and my uh, father's father came from uh, the island of Nisidos, where, where uh, we talk about a lot. And they both came in 1913. In 1913, that's 110 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left my dad in the old country to take care of the three sisters and, and the mother. Uh, his two brothers came in about 1925. And uh, my father worked for the Italian government. All those islands were owned by the Italy. Mm-hmm. My, my father worked for the Italian government. He, um, uh, he spoke Italian fluently. 
Um, and I'm 28. When you, if you take my DNA test, I'm 28% Italian. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and uh, I'm 60% Macedonian Greek, I guess, because my mom came from northern, uh, where Constantinople is, that's northern Greece, around where Macedonia is. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, the, the one thing, my father worked on the lighthouse for 17 years by himself on a piece of rock. And after World War II, uh, the, uh, the Italian government was on the wrong side. So uh, the, the British came down, and to punish the Italian government, they took those islands along the Turkish coast, which is 12 of them, and said, we're going to give these islands back to Greece. And my father lost his job with the Italian government mm. watching the lighthouse, went back to his island, uh, Nisidos, where he's from. Um, and he needed to, he wanted to get married and begin a life for himself. And uh, uh, that's a separate book that's going to come someday uh, about my mom. She ended up marrying my mom. Uh, I was born. And uh, his two brothers brought him to America. And the story I tell many a time, Frank, his two brothers had to sign on a dotted line that if he wasn't able to pay his bills, he would have to pay them. And there's an old Greek saying called philotimo, means you never embarrass your family, you never embarrass where you came from. And my father worked seven days a week not to ever borrow money from uh, uh, his uh, brothers. Uh, five days a week he worked in Longchamps, uh, which was on 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue as a busboy because he couldn't speak fluent. Um, English. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, he would go to Astoria, work as a waiter because he spoke fluent Italian. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all about hard work. And uh, uh, he worked seven days a week in order not to, to, not to go to his brothers to borrow any money. Uh, tell me about your uh, childhood, John. You mentioned growing up in Harlem. How'd your family end up in Harlem? And between the time that you that you came here to the time that you ended up in Brooklyn Tech, what was uh, what was life like for you as a child, as a as a young person? Well, it was on 135th Street, and it was a a lot of uh, uh, Spanish, a lot of uh, uh, Irish. A lot of Greeks, um, uh, a lot of blacks. I mean, it was just, it was a melting pot of working people. And uh, uh, when it came to go to school, I went to PS 192, which was across the street uh, from City College. And it it was tough going uh, to uh, kindergarten, not being able to speak English. And whatever English I learned, uh, as I said to people, I learned from my five-inch television set. Mm, mm. I, I know you were doing a lot of radio listening back then as well, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I got to become a radio listener. I remember my first transistor radio had three transistors in it. And now my iPhone has 
two billion transistors. <laughs> if people are just tuning in, we're talking with John Katzmatidis. In addition to being the owner of the Red Apple Group, which is a wild, a wildly successful business that uh, incorporates uh, more businesses than I can count on two hands, he's the host of the nationally syndicated radio show, The Cats Roundtable, host every night on WABC of Cats and Cosby, and the author of the new Wall Street Journal best-selling book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. You ask such a good question at the beginning of the book, John, when you talk about making a trip to Federal Hall, which is where George Washington was sworn in. And uh, last I heard, they still had not been successful in tearing down his statue from in front of Federal Hall. And you ask the question, why isn't every child taken on a tour of Federal Hall to learn something about American values? It sounds, even though you were describing a trip that you took as an adult, it sounds to me like your education was not lacking in a foundation for civics and for a lot of the values that made America the country it is. Well, I went to public school. I knew that Henry Hudson sailed up the river uh, in uh, uh, 1604, was it? Or something like that. And the name of his boat was the Half Moon. And we we learned that in school. And uh, uh, when I was introduced to Federal Hall, I, I really was impressed. And I said, why don't more people in New York City know that Federal Hall was the first capital of the United States? Right. And uh, we had a, a little bit of ceremony. Uh, I remember, I think we... Uh, Newt Gingrich was there that day. Uh, and you know what I made sure I do, like I do so many times, Frank? We had about 200 or 250, something like that, uh, uh, people in the audience. Before we were ready to leave, I made everybody stand up and sing God Bless America. Mm. Mm. And that made my heart feel good. Being in Federal Hall, the first capital of the United States, and and singing God Bless America. And, and that's what, you know, I'm an immigrant. I'm not born here, but I, you know, I love America. Uh, but, and and you, right now, I think we're, we're, we're in times that we're being challenged. And you ask such a good question, though, because I never went there on a class trip either. I didn't go there until I was 24 years old. And it is incredibly impressive. And a visit from, I mean, every school, at the very least in the New York area, should make a trip there. It's very convenient to get to. It's it's free uh, to go to, uh, especially for students. And uh, to th- it really does instill a love of learning about American history and about uh, the things that made this country great. Now, the aspect of this book that I was most interested in was not necessarily how I can become a billionaire, but it's the lessons that I can learn from your father and your mother, because I now have a son of my own. He's only 16 months old, but I'd love for him to have the same kind of work ethic, the same kind of drive to succeed that you have. And I'm curious, what values did your father, your parents, I should say, instill in you that drove you to reach unreachable heights and to be, go from being an immigrant with no money to being a billionaire? Well, getting a good education. My mother, my mother was very well educated. Uh, she comes from an educated family in Constantinople, which was, uh, you know, a big deal at that time. And it was very important 
so my mother uh, was the educator, and my father was the guy that that um, worked, you know, a hundred hours a week to make sure there's uh, bread and chicken on the on the table, and uh, uh, so that's part of the problem we have. <coughs> And some of our kids in New York, where right now, uh, some of the kids in my inner city, 70% of them don't have a mother and father. They, they only have a mother or only have a father. And, and, and I think that puts them at a disadvantage. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up during the days of uh, Leave it to Beaver on, uh, on uh, television, uh, or where the average American family had to have a mother and a father, and, and that's the way it was. But things are changing, and uh, I'm not sure they're changing for the better. Um, so uh, having the right education. And the other thing that the kids need is uh, the fact that uh, you need mentors. Mm. Uh, and one of my reasons for my success, I had about 12 mentors, Frank, because in life, you come, uh, you go to many forks in the road, and whether you zig left or you zig right, uh, or the right fork in the road, it's going to determine your life, and you have so many decisions to make. And I remember uh, uh, having mentors that are, were much older than me, but I listened to them, and then the big decision that one has to make is. Well, if it's good stuff or bad stuff, how do you accept the good stuff and and ignore the bad stuff? We're talking, and, with, uh, we're talking with John Katsimatidis. He's the author of the book, How Far Do You Want to Go? In terms of that, mentorship, which I agree with you, is I've always thought was important. But in reading your book, I see the pivotal role that it played in your life. One of your early mentors gave you an opportunity in the grocery business, and it led you to one of those forks in the road that you're describing. You talk about the the emphasis that your mother placed on education. You were going to New York University, one of the best schools in the country, school that I went to, and you made the decision to leave before graduating from NYU to take advantage of an opportunity in the grocery business. Tell me about that. Tell me about that fork in the road, your decision-making process, and why you chose to leave college. I did not leave. Uh, I was eight credits short from graduating. Uh, uh, while, while going to NYU for four years, uh, I was working part-time to earn money to, to run my car, to earn money to have money in my pocket, well, you're not going to go to your father that's only making a hundred dollars a week sure. and tell him you need uh, $10 to fill up the gas tank. You know, I, I can't do that. Uh, and, uh, uh, I worked for this guy, Tony. Uh, I called him my older brother. I called him my cousin and he wasn't related, but, uh, he, I guess he was one mentor. Uh, and, uh, uh he worked uh, 70 hours a week and, uh, he said to me, uh, I'm, uh, he had a second store, and he said to me, John, uh, my uncle is running that store. I'm having troubles with my uncle. We argue three times a week. I don't want it to be uh, a problem with the family. 
I want you to take over my half of the store. I said, but I'm going to school, Tony. He says, I want you to take over one half of my store. I said, so I signed a note for $10,000, $1,000 a month for 10 months. I take over half the store, and I'm going to school. You know, in those days, NYU, it was five days a week for school. It wasn't the way to have a teaser. Right. Uh, and so I go to school from 9 o'clock uh, in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. I go to the store at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, work to midnight. And then uh, three days a week, I would get up at 4 in the morning, go to Hunts Point Market, and work hard, put good old American know-how in, uh, in the store. And guess what? The store became successful. The, the sales doubled. And you, you know when partners make money? Guess what? They never argue. <laughs> Nick was Nick was the the guy that was uh, his uh, his uncle. Me and Nick never had one argument, never. And uh, the store became successful. And at the age, uh, you know, at that time, uh, when engineers, I was going to school for being an engineer, and I I I didn't drop out. I was just eight credits short. But engineers would make, uh, I forget what it was, like $30,000 a year. Uh, and that's about $250 a week, or which I thought, a little less than $300 a week. Um, no, $400. Um, I was making $1,000 a week. Uh, yeah, so why go to be why go to get those eight credits to be an engineer when you were already doing better than what engineers were making? It, it makes a lot of sense, and uh, something tells me uh, uh, by the looks well, of things you made the right decision. My my mother cried, my father yelled. Why did my father uh, yell when my mother cried? You know, they wanted me to, to have, be the, have the education. They said we sent you to school to become educated. Not to become a Hamali. You know what Hamali is? That was a Greek Turkish word of the guys that would carry crates on their back. And they were ashamed of me for that. Uh, and look, I kept working. And the other fork in the road is I met so many people in the food business. Mm. And they became my mentors. My, uh, my ice cream man. Uh, my uh, my my milkman, uh, Bill Myers, and uh, my lawyer, Sam Stein, and I, you know, so I came to Forks in the Road, but I learned from them. You know, I was 20 years old, 22 years old. I learned from them, and they liked me so much. I don't. I didn't have any banking, so when. When I wanted to open up a second store, a third store, my vendors liked me so much, and they figured if they advanced me money to open up more stores, you'd carry their products. I carry their products, right. and 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 now and and now they'll, they'll, they'll do well, and uh, that's what happened. I I had no bank financing, or my entire expansion was paid uh, by my vendors. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot from them. John, and, uh, I, I, had, I, I grew to 10 stores by the age of 23, 24, 
and I was making a million dollars a year, which was a hell of a lot of money. At, at 24 years old. Yes. And that's when a million dollars was a lot of money. John, let me ask you to pause. I know you've been a trooper and staying up this late already, but uh, if you could stick around a bit longer, I have a few more uh, questions about some of the co- stuff that you cover in the later portions of the book. Can you stick around? I'll be, I'm around. As outstanding. We're talking with John Katsimatidis. He is the author of the new book, best-selling book, excuse me, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. In just a moment, I'm going to ask John why. As a self-made billionaire who could seemingly do whatever he wants, he would choose to run for mayor of New York City, which is not exactly a job that's free of stress. We'll get into that, uh, his forays into the radio business and the lessons that he learned about uh, a wide variety of subjects and some of the lessons that you can learn if you check out the book, How Far Do You Want to Go? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Only in America can a guy from anywhere go to sleep The great Jay Black from Jay and the Americans. Uh, I actually had the privilege of seeing him perform this song live, and I got to see him do it for free 10 years ago when uh, John Katsimatidis was running for mayor, and he put on a a series of free plays, uh, Fiorello, with with, um, the incredible actor Tony LoBianco in the title role of Fiorello LaGuardia and um, Jay and the Americans. And it was a really a campaign like no other. And uh, we're talking with John Katsimatidis about his life, his career, and his new book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. If you want to pick up a copy, you can order it at uh, catsroundtable.com. It's also available on Amazon. Just search How Far Do You Want to Go or John Katsimatidis. John, tell me about your decision back in 2013 to run for mayor. You had been thinking about running for mayor in 2009, then they upended the term limits law. Uh, Rumor had it that you were thinking about running for mayor going all the way back to 2005. What made you in 2013 finally decide to take the plunge? I had a philosophy. My philosophy was keep growing your mind, keep growing yourself, keep uh, doing things until you reach your your point of uh how do you call it frank uh your, your point of incompetence <laughs> right right the peter when principle you, when you because at some point you're going to find out holy crap i i'm doing too much i'm incompetent and the scary thing about it is i'm still trying to reach that point of incompetence and i'm ending up uh, at this age, over 70 again, uh, of working as harder than I was 10 years ago. Uh, and lately, uh, what I did uh, in the last few years, uh, I'm buying things that I'm going to have fun with. 
I'm buying things to help make a difference in the, in, in the world. Um, when I was running for mayor, I wanted to, to make a difference. Uh, when I was running in 2009, Blumberg decided to run for a third term. I said, I'm not going to challenge him because I wasn't going in to challenge people. I was going in just to, you know, to, to do the right job and run our city. And in 2013, I had a dream. I had a dream of recreating the World's Fair. And I was promoting that, that I was going to do the 2014 or 2015 World's Fair. And that would have happened, Frank. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I guess it didn't happen. Uh, I lost the Republican primary to Joe Loda. But Joe is a very smart guy. But I don't think I lost to Joe. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was running Joe's campaign. And so I really lost to Rudy Giuliani uh, on the Republican. I also had the, uh, the uh, Liberal Party ticket because I used to run things for uh, uh, Bill Clinton. And I figured I, I am not going to run as a Democrat. Uh, so if I had the Liberal Party ticket, people that want to vote for me and people that hate voting in the Republican line, they'll vote for me on a Liberal line ticket. And uh, that's why I ran as a Republican liberal. And uh, uh, my mistake might have been where they convinced me to pull out of the Republican uh, race when I lost the Republican uh, primary. And uh, what do we lose by that? So, like 53, 40. Right. Uh, like yeah, that. it was a, a stone's throw. I mean, it was a, a razor thin margin. I, you know, was I am and was a registered independent, so I didn't get the opportunity to vote for you. I was one of those people that was urging you to stay in the race as a liberal candidate. And I, I suspect that the outcome may have been a little bit different and uh, we could have saved a, a little bit of heartache uh, in this city. But it wasn't. Well, it was. It wasn't. You never know what would have happened if I would have ran. You would have had Joe Loda on the Republican side, me and the liberal side in the middle, and uh, Bill de Blasio on the Democratic side. And uh, I was hoping at that time I'll even get uh, Bill Clinton's uh, nod because uh, I used to work for him. But but you, it was it would have been a three way race. Uh, Joe Loda had no money. Uh, Bill de Blasio had no money. And I had money I could spend to get myself better known. So you don't know what fork in the road would have happened for New York City if something would have changed. It's um, it was not just the World's Fair, though. You ran on a, a platform of uh, maintaining uh, things like stop, question and frisk and a lot of the policing policies of the Giuliani and Bloomberg era, many of which de Blasio subsequently did away with. You ran on a platform of uh, a, a monorail system and, uh, you know, building above way to serve underserviced parts of the city that didn't get mass transit. You said each borough would have their own deputy mayor to sort of streamline services to that borough and really a lot of uh, progressive things and a lot of visionary things, real progressive, not the way they use that term today. I'm curious, uh, John, it sounds like you might have a twinge of regret about not staying in the race as the liberal candidate. If you could do it over again, is there anything else about that race that you would do differently? If I could do it over again, uh, and by the way, John McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin was my uh, poster. 
Uh, and he never told me I was uh, losing uh, Manhattan. I figured I was here. And uh, the, the fact was that uh, um, I learned a lot. Um, where if I ran again, I would not make those mistakes. And Staten Island, I won Staten Island. Yeah, you won, you won the smartest boroughs. A, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to put a uh, unirail uh, on on the uh, uh, to connect the transit system of Staten Island to the transit system of Brooklyn uh, through the Verrazano Bridge by putting in a unirail or a monorail, which goes on the side of the bridge, uh, and uh, it could have been done. And we would have had a, a, a World's Fair, too. That would have been done. You've indicated that you might have one race left in you for something. Can you give us any sort of a hint, John, as to what uh, what that race might be, what that race might look like, and what a timetable for it might be? Well, look, Frank... You know, I always look at opportunities. And if the opportunity in 2013 was there was no incumbent mm-hmm. mayor. There was nobody in the incumbency, so I'm not going against anybody. Uh, and the other thing I did, I, I, didn't, I never criticized any of the people I was running against. I just told people what a good job I would do and what I would do. And that's what I, I, that's what I would hope other uh, politicians would do the same thing. Uh, I didn't. I didn't criticize anybody. Uh, and uh, uh, in the future, I, I don't think I don't want to be a, a senator. I don't want to be a congressman. You know why? You don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You go to Washington and 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 you vote. You know, you're not able to fix anything. Yeah, you so you're that, you're an executive. You're a CEO. I'm, you're an, the- I'm an executive. I'm there to fix things. Uh, I've been fixing companies all my life. Uh, I had a good time fixing it. I, uh, two or three major companies. I took the. I took them out of bankruptcy, saved thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs, and and uh, and I fixed them. They were broken. That's why they were in bankruptcy. Uh, and and uh, right now, uh, my son is uh, uh, working very hard. He he wants to buy more companies and. And uh, I'm giving him the, the the football to run with. I'm playing with, with uh, you know, I'm overseeing the company. I'm I'm doing what I can every day. But I, you know, I enjoy uh, helping run WABC every day at five o'clock. I go downstairs and do the five o'clock show. Uh, I'm enjoying uh, having the Ferry Hawks in Staten Island. So I'm I'm I. And I'm I'm looking for other companies that I'm going to buy uh, to have fun. So uh, maybe I'll buy a movie, well, movie studios or something. Or maybe uh, you know I'll make movies. But uh, I'm looking for me. I'm looking to have fun. If there's an opportunity uh, and and I need it to to run anything in government, then I may do that. John, let me ask you about the radio business, because you talk about fixing broken companies, failing companies. You know, I've been a fan of the radio station WABC my whole life, even before I I worked here. 
many years ago. And it was very sad for me to see as a listener and as a longtime fan of the station to see WABC sort of fall into the doldrums. The entire weekend had essentially become wall-to-wall infomercials. The station sounded stale. The programming was weak. It did not sound like a local radio station, and that was reflected in the ratings. At the time that you took it over, I don't even think it was in the top 20, and the ratings come out later today. We'll see where it is. It was number 28. Uh, So, and, and which goes to show what you've done in getting Getting it into a top 10 station for the first time in literally decades is really something of a miracle. Tell me, John, about your decision to jump into the radio business. And did being a fan of radio help you be an effective owner? Well, it's again, it's walking the road. Uh, Our mutual friend, Jerry Crowley, uh, after I ran for mayor, uh, my even though I lost, my popularity rate was high and my uh, and Jerry, we have dinner with him one night, and Jerry says, you should have a radio show. So, you know, me, I, I, you know, I said, okay. So we started with one hour, you were my producer, and we put a radio show together, then we went to two hours. I don't remember. You probably remember better than I do. Well, I yeah, I remember the, uh, the the those early days. They were a lot of fun, but it was uh, it was it was wild. But um, and then the decision to actually own a radio station was that a decision that was that just an opportunity that came upon you that you decided to take advantage of, or was well, it? Well, the first thing is I was working at nine seventy part time to, uh, to 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 running the business, and then uh, um, at one time. WOR was being sold, and it was being sold for $30 million or something like that. And the first time I ever yelled at Jerry, I said, Jerry, why didn't you tell me? I would have wrote a check. And uh, it got sold to, I guess, iHeart, and things moved on. Uh, But later on, uh, somebody came up to see, see me. It was actually Tony Carbonetti. Uh, and says, uh, there's an opportunity to buy WABC. Uh, and I said, how much? They gave me the price. I said, okay. I didn't argue. I just said, okay. And guess what? I did very little due diligence. I didn't care. I just wanted to buy it. And I wrote a check. And uh, the rest is history. It certainly worked out uh, pretty well. There's a lot of exciting things still uh, forthcoming, and I have a feeling that we're going to go from being in the top ten to being number one for the first time, I think, uh, since uh, the first time Cousin Brucey was here. We're going to continue with John Katz and Matides in just a bit. If you haven't yet picked up the book, How Far Do You Want to Go?, be sure to get a copy. You can get it on Amazon, but you can also go to catsroundtable.com and order a signed copy on there. There. Lessons from a common sense billionaire. There's some great stories in here. We're not even scratching the surface. There's some great lessons that you can learn from your own life. And there's uh, a, a lot of entertaining uh, ways that these stories are told. We're going to continue with John Katsimatidis in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined by our owner, John Katsimatidis. He's also the author of the new book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. A lot of great stories, not just about politics, not just about business, but a lot of great success stories from the field of charity uh, charity and philanthropy. And John, I know your partner in all that, and some would say that she does the lion's share of of a lot of the work, has been your wife, Margot. For folks that don't know the story of you and Margot, Tell me about uh, your courtship of Margot. How did you guys meet initially? John, I got you. Yeah, Margot was from Indianapolis, Indiana, middle America. And she came to New York to dance with the Harkness Ballet. And uh, she had some, you know, how ballerinas, they get injuries. And she came to... uh, for a job, and we were just setting up our office. We had about five, six stores at the time, and hired her. And uh, we worked together, and uh, um, so we're, we're, we've been together for over fifty years now. And uh, she, uh, and uh, my my comment in the book was, uh, no matter how tough of a day I had, when I come home. She made me smile. Well, that, that's wonderful. It makes me smile every time uh, that, I, that I've seen her. So uh, I'm not surprised that it's a daily occurrence for you. You mentioned your father. You mentioned his disappointment that you didn't graduate from, from college. There did, though, come a time where your father came to work for you. How long did your father work for you? What did he do? And uh, why did he stop working for you? Well, my father uh, uh, retired from long champs. Uh, he was getting his pension. He worked there for, for almost 30 years. And uh, uh, the, the funny one, by the way, and then after he didn't want to stay home, he came to work for me as a store manager in the store number one, which was the Red Apple store on 87th Street. Uh, and uh, we worked together there. Uh, and uh, he worked very, very hard. And when he was 88 years old, uh, he said to me, my mom died when, uh, boy, he, when he was about 78. And he says to me, I'm going to get married again. I said, what? At 88 years and, old. At 88 years old. So he goes back to the old country. And this lady uh, that, that he knew from the old country that was never married, she was 58 years old. Guess what? He brings her over, ma- marries her. And he says to me, my son, I don't want to be by myself, and I don't want to be a burden upon you. And that was the reason he wanted to do it. He, he, he didn't want to be by himself at 88 years old, and he didn't want to be, be a burden on me. And they got married, and, and uh, he lived well, and he lived to the age of 94, 95, and uh, he passed away. Uh, and it was a mistake made by hospitals and the long story that still pains me um, because he would have lived for another few years after that. Uh, and uh, then uh, after he passed away, she passed away, passes away a year later, and she's like 66. 
Oh, that's I mean, that's a sad story. I mean, it is yeah. heartwarming on the one hand, but it's uh, it's sad on the other hand. Hey, John, speaking of parenting, I know how proud you are of your two children. And I, I know them both. And they're they're great uh, people, very successful in their own right in a variety of different spheres. I see the hours that you work now and you essentially work 18, 19 hours a day, maybe more now from what I see. I can't imagine what you were doing when you were building a, a grocery empire, an oil empire and everything else. And I'm asking this from a selfish perspective. How did you balance being sort of a workaholic and needing to work as hard as you needed to to be successful and to achieve all your goals, all your dreams, and at the same time being a present father and an active father. How do you balance working like crazy and being an a, 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 a aware and alert parent? Well, I love my kids. Uh, I always come home to see them. Uh, I'd come home to see them before I would have to go out again at night to to an industry function or a business dinner. Uh, but I made sure I, when they were very, very young that I'd come home, give them a hug. And by the way, uh, whenever they were off from school, the three days or four days during Thanksgiving, the week before Christmas and New Year's, the, the week of Easter, I always took them away. I always wanted to, I loved my kids. I always took them away. The other thing was, I made sure they both went to NYU. I'm not a parent that would just send off their kids to, to Boise, Idaho, or to, to any place else. I wanted my kids in, in New York. I wanted them to, to give, be able to give them a hug every day uh, in the morning and a hug every day at night. And uh, uh, my daughter uh, completed uh, uh, Stern Business School in three and a half years, wow. record time. And uh, my son completed it, and uh, they both, uh, uh, they were always close to me. And um, uh, I'm, I'm, I always try to stay near my kids. I don't, I, I think parents are, are wrong sometimes to send them away. You send them away, you're going to lose them. Uh, I didn't want to lose my kids. Last question, John, and I hope we could do this again, and I appreciate you being willing to stay uh, up late. By the way, Frank, you could buy it also, I think it's a WABC radio uh, store, and it's and it's autographed. So you get if you go to wabcradio.com and go to the, to the store, you can probably get an autographed copy. Yeah, so wabcradiostore.com, and I'll add if you use the promo code Frank fifteen, you could save fifteen percent off. So you can get an autographed copy of a great book, and you and save some money if you use Frank fifteen. And if you resell it and it's autographed, it's worth more. <laughs> <laughs> this way, it's not personalized. They, they could uh, they could sell it. They could sell it. Uh, they could sell it to whomever you want. Hey, uh, John, uh, this hour has just flown by. I have uh, a, a lot of other stuff that I could ask you about. I'd love to do a part two sometime in the future. I appreciate the time. And uh, look, you're always welcome on this program. As I've thanked you countless times, uh, publicly and privately. Thanks again for the opportunity to do the show. You've made my dream come true. Well. Frank, you do a great job, and we created this show, you know, and we always talked about it because – and the two shows that we did together uh, that I really enjoyed 
was uh, we, we were just playing around. What was it? The other side of Midnight X Files. That's something? right. Or, uh, that's or, right. The Cats Roundtable X Files uh, edition, and uh, and a, and a few others like that. John Katsimatidis, check out the book. How far do you want to go? Go to wabcradiostore.com or find it on Amazon. Listen to John on the radio tonight at five p.m. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.